And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. Ah, man, it's already Wednesday. The, the, the week is just flying. Got some great stuff in store for us today. I'm going to do something. I'm going to give you a preview of something that I may do a video in the near future on my channel, Apocrypha Apocalypse. Um because this has to do with the canon, but it actually has more to do with uh, the Bible and the canon, and also our apologetics with our separated brethren. And that is the self-attestation of Scripture and the inner witness of the Holy Spirit as propounded by John Kelvin. Now, this uh, particular doctrine uh, of Calvinism, and it's certainly used by Reformed Protestants today, and you also get it from Pentecostals and so on that the scripture is self-attesting. It impresses itself upon the believer. So you don't need the church. You don't need the church to come up with a canon. You don't need the church to tell us which books are apocrypha or, or whatever. It's the God-breathed scriptures that attest to us this thing. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to do something that I, you don't see in Catholic apologetics. And that is I'm going to go through Calvin. I'm going to show where we agree and where we disagree and why we agree and disagree. <laughs> so usually, uh, you know, uh, Catholic uh, apologists, Orthodox apologists, uh, or, or even Protestants that are critical of Calvinism, uh, they'll make the, the, the easy claims, right? The, the very, uh, they'll pick the low-hanging fruit in regards to uh, poking holes in the self-attestation idea but I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust me. I'm gonna poke a lot of big holes in it. But I also want to be fair, you know, because there is some truth there, and I don't think as Catholics we should deny it. In fact, this could be something that both Catholics and, and Protestants can agree on. So we're gonna, we're gonna go through that in detail on the other side of the break. But on this side of the break, folks, we're gonna do what we always do. We're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with our Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the questionable cause fallacy. And we are also going to be an early church father. Today's early church father is a early church father that I'm not sure whether he's well known or not. Uh, quite frankly, he's one of those early church fathers that had I not read about him in Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers, I probably never heard of him before. So it's St. Passion of Barcelona. St. Passion of Barcelona. So lots of great stuff in store for us today. I want to begin, as I do always here, by welcoming you all to the show. So welcome aboard, all of you listening on radio, and of course our live stream peeps. How you doing? And also all of you listening on podcasts around the world and in the future. Um. <laughs> either through our handy-dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. <coughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, guys, every every single broadcast, I um, um, always point this out because I think this is a very important tool 
that you can use for uh, your apologetics is uh, virginmostpowerfulradio.org because all our shows are archived up there along with all the other shows Virgin Most Powerful produces. So if you're listening to my show or one of the other shows and you want to, maybe you missed a detail, maybe you want to jot down some notes, or maybe you want to share it with your friends, uh, this is a great opportunity for you. Just go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org, click on the show, and boom, you got them all right there. You could do all that stuff. You can download it, you share it with friends, do all sorts of things with it. And uh, that also I, I really encourage because it increases our visibility. Also, I want to give the official Dojo mailbox. It is questions at handsonapologetics.com. That's the way to get a hold of me, the sensei. And I um, truly appreciate hearing from you. So, folks, uh, just you know, as a by way of reminder, um, uh, we did have a power failure here in the Midwest Command Center last week for a few days, which has put me way behind on everything. So if you do send me an email and you don't get a quick response, uh, give me some time. And if I don't, please resend it because uh, these, the, trust me, I am I am hopping over here trying to get back up to speed on all the different projects. And you never know. I mean, um, actually, I got a chance to see the damage and it looks like a temporary fix. So I have a feeling the power will temporarily go out yet again when they make that fix permanent. And uh, quite frankly, um, I don't know when it will happen. Maybe it will happen during the show. God willing, it won't be during any of our shows, but uh, you never know. So, But we'll get through it. We always do, right? Because, uh, you know, we got fortitude. We can persevere. All right. So let's go to our Finding the Fallacy for today, which is... Uh, the questionable cause fallacy. Questionable cause fallacy is also known as the causal fallacy, false cause, and for you Latinists, the non-causa pro-causa. Um, it is a category of informal fallacy in which a cause is incorrectly identified. Okay, very, very simple, very general definition. It's one of those umbrella terms that a lot of fallacies could fall underneath. Basically, whenever somebody misidentifies a cause, they commit this fallacy. So uh, the stock example for this would be every time I go to sleep, the sun goes down. Therefore, my going to sleep causes the sun to set. So the two events may coincide, but there really is no causal connection. Thanks be to God. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Uh that's a pretty straightforward fallacy, I think. So, like I said, it's an umbrella term. So any kind of uh, mistaken causality, uh, like a pro-cause, uh, excuse me, post hoc ergo propter hoc or cum hoc ergo propter hoc, uh, you know, because uh, after this, therefore, because of this, that type of things, all of that fits under this questionable cause fallacy. And that is our fallacy for today. Okay, so remember, whenever you're making a claim about cause, you really need to focus on and find the smoking gun, so to speak. You really do need to make that causal link. You can't just assume because certain things happen that seem to correlate with each other that there would be one causes another. Right? You got to do a little bit more digging. All right, let's meet our early church father for today, who is St. Passion of Barcelona. St. Passion is the father of a Praetorian prefect, Dexter, 
whom St. Jerome dedicated uh, a section in his uh, book on illustrious uh, men. He was already dead when Jerome added him to his catalog and was still flourishing, uh, but still flourishing in the time of Theodosius, whose reign was 379 A.D. Jerome notes that Passion bore the burden of the Episcopacy of Barcelona and the Pyrenees and comments on his simple eloquence and personal integrity, saying also that his life was even more illustrious than his words. Passion's authentic remains consist of three letters to an otherwise unknown novationist named Cyprian, and uh, or Cipronian, excuse me, and two sermons, one on penance and one on baptism. Uh, Passion, Jurgen's faith early father, says, is not especially original thinker, but his writings have no small importance as an early testimony in the area of baptismal theology and penitential practice. His study is, uh, excuse me, his style is truly delightful and is unfortunate that his writings are not more readily accessible and more widely read. So, uh, glowing uh, praise by Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers. Um, we have the two, excuse me, the three letters to uh, Novationist Cyprionim. And uh, the grouping of the three letters as a single work is, of course, quite artificial, but it's convenient. And the letters all deal with the same subject matter, namely defense of Catholicism and the penitential doctrine as opposed to Novationism and its refusal to grant forgiveness of sins committed before baptism. The three letters seem to be grouped in their correct chronological order. The first must date in the view of its mention of Apollinarius. Wow, i got to get my pronunciations correct. From about 375 A.D., its chapter 4 is found a celebrated line uh, which I'm, I'm going to just translate from the Latin, folks. I'm not going to try to do it myself and butcher it. Uh, Christian is my name. Catholic is my surname. So if you ever heard that phrase, that actually comes from today's early church father, who's a uh, uh, passion of Barcelona. Also, there are. Uh, he also has a sermon exhorting to penance. This was written sometime before 392. And uh, although it's called a book in the Latin title, the sermon exhorting to penance is actually a sermon uh, prepared for oral delivery. Passion shows in this work, as well as the other uh, now extant sermon, uh, one on baptism, that he has very fine horatory style and a good pastoral sense. So... um, yeah, so lots of good things. You know, that's one of the reasons why I love going through Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers is you get this little background and uh, a little bit of an assessment as to uh, the charm of particular works. So if you're looking for something to read, you know, now you have an early church father you can read, especially if you want to know about baptism or penance. Just go today's early church father was St. Passion of Barcelona. All right, here's the music coming up on the other side of the break. It's going to be the Sensei doing a deep dive. We're going to look at John Kelvin's teaching on the self-attestation and inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. Well, you know, this is something I've been thinking about, formalizing for quite a while. Actually, I was even head on the, the back burner to possibly do a video on the Apocrypha Apocalypse channel on this topic. Uh, recently, there's been some uh, non-Catholics, even you could style them anti-Catholics, since they're, they're very verbal about opposing Catholicism, who has been pushing this idea, this Calvinistic idea that the scripture attests to itself. It doesn't need a church to attest to it. And the idea of uh, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit and those two things combined uh, tells the Christian uh, that the book is canonical scripture, right? And one book is and one book isn't. And it's uh, through that uh, self-attestation that we come to know and are convicted on the canon. And therefore, you don't need the church to tell you uh, which books are inspired, which ones aren't. You don't need the help on the canon or, uh, you know, or reverence, uh, you know, giving reverence to Scripture. Now, uh, the thing about Calvin is there, there's all sorts of uh, different ideas mixed in there. And I wanted to kind of pull out what's right and what's wrong with his point of view. And, of course, there's lots of similar ideas that have historically uh, been propounded along the same lines. For example, if you're familiar with uh, Islamic apologetics, you know that Muslims uh, claim that the the only miracle that uh, that uh, was produced by Muhammad was the Quran, and they w- they make a kind of self attestation claim. They claim that the Quran is so perfect and beautiful, and uh, so on and so forth in Arabic, that uh, it cannot be reproduced by human agency. And of course, there's a lot of Christian pushback on that and some interesting arguments to the contrary. But nevertheless, they do make this self-attestation claim, uh, as does the Mormons. Uh, Joseph Smith and uh, Mormonism, uh, they use something similar for the Book of Mormon. If you ever had a Mormon missionary at your door, they'll give you a copy of the Book of Mormon and they'll say, pray about it and uh, be open you know, to God's wisdom, and you'll receive a burning of the bosom that the Book of Mormon is true and it's the Word of God. And quite a few people have taken them up on that and have accepted the Book of Mormon. So it's important for us to really get clear what exactly is true and what is not true about self-attestation. And like I said, we're going to be focusing specifically on what John Kelvin taught. Now, John Kelvin was a later Protestant reformer. Um, he uh, uh, wrote a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And uh, that's really his main theological uh, work. <coughs> and in that book, uh, book one, chapter seven, he uh, addresses the self-attestation idea. So I want to talk about it. It's, it's interesting. And I, I think we can use a a lot of, um, uh, we can get a better perspective on Protestantism as a whole by doing so. So let's read John Calvin's Institutes, chapter uh, 7, section 1. Excuse me. A most pernicious error has generally prevailed, this, that Scripture is of importance only so far as conceded to it by the suffrage of the Church. As if the eternal and inviolable truth of God 
could depend on the will of men. <coughs> Excuse me. He continues, with great insult to the Holy Spirit, it is asked, who can assure us that the scriptures proceed from God? Who guarantee that it has come down safe and unimpaired to our times? Who's persu- who has persuaded us that this book is to be received with reverence and that that uh, expunged from the list? Uh, did not the church regulate all these things with certainty? On the determination of the church, therefore, it is said, depend of both the reverence which is due to scripture and the books which are to be admitted into the canon. Thus profane men, and he continues, care not in what absurdities they entangle themselves and others, provide, uh, provided that they extort the simple, uh, the simple this one acknowledgement, namely that there is nothing which the church cannot do, unquote. Okay, so let's let's dig into that, okay. Um, sorry for the coughs and the mangled reading, but uh, I think you get the gist. So Kelvin begins by raising an objection that apparently his opponents had raised against him. And the objector raises the claim that the transmission of Scripture and the canon of Scripture, that is, namely, which books belong in the Bible, which ones don't, is due to the determination of the church to the effect that there is nothing which the church cannot do. So what's true about that, what's not? Well, the objector is correct that, yes, the transmission of Scripture is due to the church. And I think pretty much everybody would admit that as well, even Calvinists. Um, <clears throat> but notice, uh, Calvin kind of, and this is the problem with institutes, he, he He's said to be an, a systematic thinker, but actually his thinking's not very systematic. He pairs the reverence due to Scripture with the canon. And those are really two different questions. Because why do we revere Scripture and how do we know which books belong in Scripture are two different things, right? The reverence due to Scripture is because of its divine authorship. It's inspired. And our knowledge of what constitutes Scripture comes from the church. So the church doesn't make books inspired. They already are inspired. The church recognizes this because it received the deposit of faith from the apostles as to which books are sacred and which ones aren't. Okay, so two different things, two different uh, lines of uh, inquiry. But Kelvin blurs this, and he he keeps reintroducing various things that kind of sort of fit together, but he doesn't really make a lot of necessary distinctions. <coughs> now, another thing to notice is uh, Kelvin's, the whole idea of the self-attestation is really uh, in reaction to an academic idea that was bandied about in uh, the academy at his time. And actually a lot of church leaders kind of glummed onto this uh, belief that the church is somehow over scripture and that the, the scripture's authority comes from the subsequent approval of it by the church. So this is called the subsequent approval theory, right? So in other words, what makes scripture scripture is the fact that the church had subsequently affirmed it. Okay. And uh, so this subsequent approval theory was alive and well in academia back in the 1500s. And, uh, you know, it, it probably came from secular law or church law, 
right? Because uh, sometimes like a notarized document would have standing in a law court. So, you know, they probably, this thinking, I think, kind of fits in the line with that, that somehow the, the scriptures needs to be notarized by the church as, to be authoritative. Um, and uh, the fact that church leaders, and including bishops, clerics, actually held on to this belief is nothing new or scandalous. I mean, just, just think of it today. Right. I mean, uh, in biblical studies today, there's lots of theories that are propounded, like the documentary hypothesis, where you have J, E, D and P sources in the Old Testament. Whether or not it's true or not, that is what the standard teaching is in academia. Same thing with marking priority, things like that. And so it shouldn't be surprising that people in the church, even in high offices, would hold on to what the academy thinks is true. Right. So same thing today, same thing back in the 1500s, right? So the subsequent approval theory was like the thing that was kind of accepted by pretty much everybody. And that's what Kelvin is aiming against. Now, here's the ironic thing, folks. Oh, an important distinction before I do that. Um, notice that uh, it may show up in the teaching of the church, but that's different from saying it shows up as a dogmatic teaching of the church. Okay, so teachers within the church might have propounded this, like today you have mark and priority, whatever. But that's different from saying the church actually dogmatically defines it as such, right? So like all theories, uh, you know, in academia, you go through and, and some found successful and others tend to be, you know, found untenable. And that's what happened with the subsequent approval theory. It eventually, it was recognized that it had some serious defects, and it was jettisoned. And and this is the interesting thing, is Kelvin was actually right on this. The subsequent approval idea is wrong. And uh, not only that, but the church has spoken dogmatically. This is the Catholic faith that uh, that that's not where Scripture's authority comes from. It's not because it was subsequently approved by the church. If you don't believe me, check out Vatican I, 1870, in the Dogmatic Constitution Concerning the Catholic Faith, Chapter 2 on Revelation. It teaches, quote, But the church holds these books as sacred and canonical, not because having been put together by human uh, industry alone, they were then approved by its its authority, but because they contain revelation without error, but be, excuse me, let me reread that. But the church holds that these books are sacred and canonical, not because having been put together by human industry alone, they were then approved by its authority or because they contain revelation without error, but because having been written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author and as such has been handed down to the church itself. And uh, so Vatican I says, subsequent approval theory, not good. In fact, in the Biblical Commission uh, ruling in June, June 18, 1915, says the Catholic dogma on the inspiration and inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures, according to which that the sacred authors assert, declares, and introduces, ought to be maintained as asserted, declared, and introduced by the Holy Spirit. So this is recognized as dogma. 
Uh, Vatican II, dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, says for Holy Mother Church, relying on the belief of the apostles, holds that the books of the Old and New Testament in their entirety and all their parts are sacred and canonical because written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the church herself. And the footnote there, guess what? goes back to Vatican I and also to the Pontifical Biblical Commission uh, ruling in 1915. So, um, so this is Catholic dogma, right? And in fact, in De Verbum, the same document, 210, it says this teaching office is not above the Word of God, but it serves it, teaching only what is handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission with the help of the holy spirit it draws from the one deposit of faith everything which it presents for belief as divinely revealed so kelvin's right and we're going to see where kelvin goes wrong so stay tuned folks listen to hands on apologetics we'll be right back this is jesse romero you're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're looking at John Kelvin and the idea that the Scripture attests to itself, and that's why you don't need the church to tell you which books are Scripture and which ones aren't. Uh, we are going through institutes and just pulling out some things and pointing out where we agree and where we disagree. Uh, so far, you know, there is some agreement. Uh, Kelvin was actually right. But notice, folks, this is interesting, that Kelvin's whole position, this is true for the Reformation as a whole, was reacting to things that were propounded in the academy back in the 1500s. And the church moves on. You know, these ideas may be bandied about, but they're not dogmatically defined or anything like that. And and when they do end up within definitions, uh, you know, the church moves on, but it's the Protestants are still anchored in these um, arguments that took place in the 1500s. In fact, uh, you can see videos today where uh, Protestants who have propounded the self-attestation of Scripture are really just beating um, a straw man. Uh, it, it really isn't what we believe as Catholics. Okay, so continuing with Kelvin, he says, the ravings are admirably refuted by a single expression of the apostle, Paul testifies that the church is built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20. If the doctrine of the apostles and prophets is the foundation of the church, Kelvin argues, the former must have had its, had its before the latter began to exist. Nor is there any room for cavil that the church derives her first beginning from thence. It still uh, remains doubtful what writings are to be attributed to the apostles and prophets until her judgment is interposed. In other words, what he's saying is, okay, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets, meaning the Old and New Testament. But if there was any doubt as to which books belong to the Old and New Testament, then that would the church couldn't make something more certain than it was. So if the church is certain about the scriptures, then uh, then uh, it had to have existed prior to the church, right, with the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. 
Well, the problem with this is that uh, uh, Kelvin's interpretation of uh, Ephesians 2.20 simply doesn't work. It's not an authentic interpretation. Why do I say that? Well, you know, in the Middle Ages, that was a common interpretation that when Paul mentioned the apostles and prophets, they was talking about the uh, the Old Testament prophets. Um, but modern biblical scholarship, and I'm talking about Protestant biblical scholarship, a uh, majority of the new uh, or more recent contemporary uh, commentators believe that he's actually talking about New Testament prophets. Remember, uh, Paul in Acts talks about how there was prophetic gifts and that there were prophets in the church. In fact, you could see this in the Didache, one of the early church writings outside of the Bible. So the question is, well, is he talking about Old Testament prophets or new? Kelvin's argument rests on that he must be talking about Old Testament prophets. But this is the reasons why uh, um, commentators don't believe this to be true today. First, there's the wording. Uh, he doesn't say the apostles and the prophets as if there are two separate groups, you know, New Testament and Old Testament. But he says the apostles and prophets as if they make up a, a unity. Okay. Uh, that's a weak argument. But still, it, it suggests that that's possibly wrong. Another argument is the context, of course. And I think the context is probably um, more decisive. Well, actually, yeah. Um, for example, he's talking to a Gentile audience, which wouldn't really care that much about Old Testament prophets and so on. So that would not make it likely. Also notice that he doesn't say the, he doesn't go chronologically. He doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, that the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. If he's talking about Old Testament prophets, it would seem that they would precede the apostles, not uh, follow. But rather, he says the apostles and prophets. Again, that suggests that perhaps the prophets come after the apostles. Um, but I think the clincher, really, is the context of how he uses it. Every time he uses prophets in Ephesians, he's talking about New Testament prophets. In fact, right after he says this in chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 5, he says, which has been made known to human beings in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So notice it's now revealed by the prophets. So it seems that the prophets a few verses earlier must be the New Testament prophets. Likewise, in Ephesians four eleven through 13, he talks about offices in the church, and he said uh, he gave some as apostles and others as prophets. So Kelvin's idea that, uh, well, there, the church had to have already had certainty about the Old Testament before it even existed, right? And uh, therefore, the certainty really isn't determined by the church. No, that doesn't make sense because he's kind of twisting Ephesians 2.20. Hopefully that makes sense with you. Um, continuing on, Kelvin Institutes, Book 172, uh, he says this, quote, as, as to the question, how shall we be persuaded that it comes from God without recurring to the decree of the church? It is just the same as if you would say, how shall we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter? Scripture bears upon its face as clear evidence of its truth 
as white and black do by their color, sweet and bitter by their taste. Uh, interesting. So he believes that the, the attestation of scripture, the self-attestation, is a binary. It's a, either you get the attestation or you don't. Okay. So uh, when he reads the scriptures, it's like light from darkness, bitter from sweet. He knows these books are inspired and these books aren't simply by reading them. Well, you got a problem here. And the problem is, what do you do, John, with all the false positives and false negatives that you find in Protestant history? <coughs> These are people that you believe, I imagine, if you were alive today, um, that they're Christians and they have the Holy Spirit. Let's look at a list of some of these, okay? For example, Jan Hus, uh, which is the forerunner of the Protestant Reformation. He believed the, the Old Testament Deuterocanon was inspired canonical scripture. Was he not receiving the self-attestation in that? Was that like a false attestation? Uh, what about the sweet, you know, light, dark, <laughs> sweet, bitter thing? Same thing with, uh, by the way, with John Wycliffe, who's also understood as a forerunner to Protestantism. Um, he, he read... Jerome's critical remarks regarding the Old Testament Deuterocanon, you know, the seven books that Catholics and Protestants accept, or Catholics and Orthodox accept, but Protestants don't. But nevertheless, um, Wycliffe cites the Deuterocanon scripture, uses it in arguments. And then you have the funny thing with Luther, where between 1517 and 1519, he's using the Old Testament Deuterocanon, like Sirach and Tobit and, and stuff like that, in debates to serve as proof. So didn't he, uh, you know, is this like a false attestation? Well, what's going on there? And, uh, you know, and also you have the problem of, well, you know, he also was, he wanted to reject James and so on. And we'll talk about that. What do you do with that? Didn't he receive the testimony of the Holy Spirit? Martin Luther. And then there's Andreas Karlstad in 1519, uses Sirach in debate. You have Philip Melanchthon. In the Book of Concord, cites Second uh, Maccabees and Tobit as scripture. Yeah, Martin Chemnitz, Lutheran theologian, who thought that Hebrews, James, Jude, Second Peter, and Third John couldn't be used to confirm doctrine. Didn't he receive the attestation of these things in the Holy Spirit? And then you have Matthias Hafenrefer. Uh, who didn't believe that the uh, same books were canonical. And then the first edition of Luther's German Bible and Gustav Adolphus's Bible in 1618, uh, they don't list some New Testament books as being part of the New Testament canonical books. You have a, a 18th century Lutheran pra pastor, Robellon, who denied the canonicity of Revelation. Didn't he get that attestation in the Holy Spirit? Okay, well, enough about Lutherans. Uh, Zwingli. Zwingli said uh, he didn't hold to Paul's, uh, excuse me, Calvin's binary. Uh, he said the Deuterocanon was more diluted and feebler, and it appeared rather that the limitations of the former scriptures uh, then written in the particular fervor of fresh spirit, unquote. In other words, he believed that the, the Deuterocanon of the Old Testament was inspired, but the inspiration was feebler and diluted as opposed to the, the proto-canonical books. So Eric Swingley, did he have the Holy Spirit? Did he receive this self-attestation like 
white and black, bitter and sweet? Apparently not. Then you have uh, Heinrich Bullinger, who uh, was the author of the first Helvetic Confession in 1536. He actually included the Deuterocanon as part of the, the Holy Scriptures. But in 1566, in the second Helvetic uh, Confession, he now assigns them to the Apocrypha. So, and we saw that with Luther, you know, he accepts and then he rejects. So if there is an attestation of scripture, apparently it's not instantaneous in all, uh, in, you know, in every event. Um, now here's, here's a clincher. <laughs> John Kelvin himself believed that the book of Baruch was written by a prophet. In fact, in his commentaries on uh, Corinthians in 1546, he says that uh, the the idea that uh, idol that meat sacrificed to idols or sacrificed to demons comes from the book of Baruch, four seven, and of course the book of Baruch is part of the Old Testament Deuterocanon. You have Sebastian Castillo, who denied the inspiration of Song of Songs. Then you have John Bunyan. Uh, this is interesting. In Grace Abounding, he felt utterly desolate one day. And a verse came to his mind that gave him divine comfort. And he searched the scriptures. He couldn't find it. Eventually, he searched the so-called Apocrypha. And lo and behold, in Sirach 2.10, he found that verse. And he says, I, I bless God for that word, for it was of God to me, a word that does still at times shines in my face. Was Sirach self-attesting? Well, apparently so. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, Hands-On Apologetics. We are looking at John Kelvin's teaching on the self-attestation of Scripture and the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Looking where we agree, where we disagree, and problems with the theory, um... In right before the break, uh, we went through a whole list of proto-Protestants like Huss and Wycliffe and a whole list of uh, Protestants, Lutheran, Reformed, uh, and others. In fact, I didn't even mention this, but all the Anabaptists, uh, they accepted the Deuterocanon. Um, hmm. What about this self-attestation? Were Anabaptists, were they saved? Did they have the Holy Spirit? Um, yeah, so <laughs> you have a lot of false positives, false negatives. How does that work out? Well, I think, uh, Kelvin's solution, how it works out, I think is very dangerous and, and hopefully we'll get to that at the end, but let's continue a little bit. I want to continue with this thought. He says in, uh, this is in section five, he says, let it therefore be held as fixed that those who are inwardly taught by the Holy Spirit, acquiesce implicitly in Scripture, that Scripture carrying its own evidence along with it, deigns not to submit to proofs and arguments, but owes the full conviction with which we ought to receive it to the testimony of the Spirit. Enlightened by Him, we no longer believe, either by our own judgment or that of others, that the Scriptures are from God, but in a way superior to human judgment, feel perfectly assured as much as if uh, we beheld a divine image uh, visibly impressed on it, that it came to us by the instrumentality of 
God, I believe. And it continues, because we feel a divine energy living and breathing in it, an energy which, uh, by which we are drawn and animated to obey it, willing indeed and knowingly, but more vividly and effectually than could be done by human will or knowledge. Okay, now, there's a tendency in apologetics to basically deny whatever is affirmed by people that we don't necessarily agree with. And uh, I think this is an area where us Catholics ought to agree, at least in a qualified sense, okay? What he says about sacred scripture is true. The word of God is effective. The word of God transforms your life. It is different than any other uh, books out there because it, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is breathed into scripture. And when it's, it's proclaimed in church, it's breathed out upon us. And it changes us. And we have a whole history of like the early church fathers, the desert fathers especially, where the, they're, we're sanctified by diving into the word of God. Okay. And so there, there, you should sense a kind of sort of divine uh, life of scripture, right? Now, the difficulty is, is that, does that give us the specificity to say this document, this particular document, I should say, is most definitely inspired by God as light from darkness and bitter from sweet, as opposed to some other document. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't. And like I said, with, um, this, uh, this is, I think, affirmed by the church and affirmed by numerous popes and encouragement of Catholics to read the word of God, be soaked in it prayerfully. And, you know, so what he says is true. The problem is that truth doesn't work practically if you're going to have a group of documents and you have to determine which book is inspired and which one isn't. In fact, there's a real danger because you may bring your own presuppositions to bear. And, you know, when you're subjectively reading these texts, um, you know, uh, you you can't discern, right? You might be reading into the text your own belief, like a Protestant would affirm only the Protestant books or the books affirmed by uh, within Protestant tradition, I should say. And Catholics would affirm only the books that, are affirmed in Catholic tradition, but at least we have a rational grounding for that. But without that rational grounding, and you're, if you're going by just the attestation of the Holy Spirit, you, you do come dangerously close to, like I said, with Mormonism and so on. Um, another thing, too, is that he, he confuses two things. Our conviction that Scripture is true and it comes from God, from our knowledge of what what is scripture and what isn't okay two different things now like i said there is a, a dangerous element to uh his teaching and <laughs> if all, all everything i've said wasn't dangerous uh kelvin continues he says such then is a conviction which asks not for reasons such a knowledge which accords with high re the highest reason namely Knowledge in which the mind rests more firmly and securely than any reasons, such in fine, the conviction that revelation from heaven alone can produce. Then he continues, nay, the modest and teachable reader 
will find sufficient reason in the promise contained in Isaiah that all the children of the renovated church, quote, shall be taught of the Lord, unquote, quoting Isaiah 54, 13. This singular privilege God bestows on his elect only, whom he separates from the rest of mankind, unquote. Okay, so, yeah, um, lots of problems, right? Lots of problems. First, um, actually, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. I'm sorry, folks, because I am kind of jumping around. But I missed an important point before we go to this, and then we'll dis- we'll dissect this paragraph. But uh, this idea of um, the the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, impinging itself upon us that uh, that we we are enlivened by the reading of Scripture, all of that's true, right? But the problem is, how do you practically work that out? For example, uh, you could read a book. Immediately you feel that it comes from God, but maybe you read it more and more and you feel, well, no, not really. It was just a uh, a momentary, um, you know, ex- being excited about reading new things. Or you might read a book, even a book from the Bible, a legitimate book, and it may not impress you as necessarily coming from God. And maybe it takes a numerous readings, right? Maybe uh, you'll get the attestation, you know, or it will, uh, you'll realize the profundity and the beauty of it only after reading it a dozen or so times, right? It doesn't come immediately. We already saw that. I think, I think every Protestant would be forced to admit that must be true because remember how I said Martin Luther accepted the Deuterocanon and then eventually he flip-flops and, and denies it. Same thing with the Anabaptist. Same thing. Uh, with the Reformed, uh, you know, Calvin believed Baruch was inspired, um, things like that. So at what point do you, can you say definitively that this is not Scripture or that it is Scripture, right? If people can flip-flop um, or it takes multiple readings before it impresses upon you that it must be inspired, obviously you can't use that as a test case. Right, because you would have to read everything multiple times, um, and that would be not only the biblical material, not only the biblical material, including the Deuterocanon, but e- even pseudepigraphical works like Fourth Ezra or Second Baruch or something like that. You would have to read all these documents multiple times, and uh, to whether find out whether or not there there is a positive response. That's just simply impractical. In fact, it shows that if you're going by this alone, you'll never have a closed canon because you can't possibly read every book in existence multiple times to find out uh, whether you get the attestation of the Holy Spirit or not, or that it impresses itself upon you. Okay, so that was, I think that's an important point, and uh, so I want to make that. Now let's go back to the paragraph. So Kelvin says that... Um, and find the conviction which revelation from heaven alone can produce. That's one red line that it crosses. And this is something that Calvin's also accused of. He almost admits of a kind of private revelation or a public revelation, maybe, about which books are inspired and which ones aren't. But as we know, all public revelation ceased with the death of the last apostle. 
So, and private revelations are binding. So, you know, that's a that's a red line that's crossed. Another one, he says that the that all uh, the, all the children will be taught by God, quoting Isaiah in of the renovated church, which is another problem with uh, Calvin. That why is it that the renovated, that is the Protestant church, has this special gift that they can be taught by God through their self-attestation. But the church prior to Calvin, the historic church, apparently didn't have this gift, right? This seems kind of arbitrary. And then finally, I think the most dangerous thing of all, he says that the single privilege of God bestows on his elect alone and separates them from the rest of humanity. In other words, what about all these false positives, false negatives? Calvin's solution is, well, if you're elect, then you're right. Of course, how do you know you're elect? <laughs> right? And I think this is dangerous because it almost locks them into, uh, if someone really buys into this belief, it makes it almost like a cult, right? Because to deny uh, what you believe is scripture would be akin to denying your election, namely that you're going to heaven, Right? So uh, it actually has a kind of cult-like hue to it that uh, elect, by tying election into the self-attestation. It's kind of like the emperor, uh, the emperor without clothes. I forgot what the exact title is, but everyone's afraid to tell the emperor that is, he's, he doesn't have any clothes on, even though the emperor believes he does. It's kind of the same thing. It's like I'm afraid to say maybe the Protestant canon's wrong, because if I do, then I'm kind of saying that Kelvin's wrong. And I'm also saying I may not be elect of God. I might not let go to heaven. So, you know, some, there are some very dangerous elements to this teaching. So anyway, hope you guys enjoyed it. Sorry for jumping around. This is something I'm still working through and developing. And like I said, I'm probably going to put a video together on it. So I'm glad that uh, if you got something from it, glad it helped you out. All right. Well, I hear the music coming up. It's time for me to shut down the Midwest Command Center, turn off the dojo lights. I want to thank all of you for listening. And coming up next, High Impact Captain Talk with the Terry and Jesse Show. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. Bye-bye, everyone. Have a great day.